Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest. This week, science journalist and author Rebecca Boyle on the moon, tides, and national security. I think science and science literacy is just so underappreciated and, and really, really important in our culture and in our democracy. The scientific method is one of the best ways we've ever invented to develop perceived wisdom, to understand ourselves. The Jewish calendar is still a lunar calendar. The Islamic calendar is still a lunar calendar. But the civil calendar that most of the Western world uses is now totally divorced from the moon. And that's because of Caesar. The moon is, I think, the most important physical trait of Earth. We know that it keeps our climate stable over millennia. I really think if we look for Earth-like planets around sun-like stars, we should really be looking for planets that have large moons, because I think it might be really important for life. Rebecca Boyle, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. You are a, a prolific writer. <laughs> you've, you've published everywhere from Scientific American and The Atlantic to Quanta Magazine, which is underrated. Uh, people yes. should go there. And Popular Science. But you also have written a lot at Atlas Obscura. And that's, that's a lot of different outlets on a lot of different topics. Uh, how did you get started in the science writing and communication industry? And what, what has seized you most over the years? So, I mean, I'm a longtime journalist. I used to work for newspapers. And after becoming a victim of the Great Recession um, and leaving newsrooms, not of my own accord, um, I kind of just started freelancing and, and writing for magazines about what I am most interested in, which is science. And I used I was a beat reporter. I used to cover politics and, you know, city and county government and elections. And I was covered the New Hampshire primary at one point. And you know, that was all very interesting in a way, <laughs> but I'm also very glad not to do that anymore. Um, I think science is my first love and I never really knew how to make that a job while being a writer because I wanted to be a writer first and foremost. I did, I took astronomy classes. I took physics in college, you know, and then I was like, uh, no, <laughs> I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna teach this. I don't think I'm going to go to grad school, you know, for science. And so, I just kind of gravitated toward being interested in it. And then yeah. when it came time to, you know, find a way to make money as a writer, it was like, well, I think this stuff is cool. And I just kind of just kept doing that. I don't know. I don't, I don't really have a, the most strategic um, plan <laughs> as far as my career has gone. Um, and I've been very fortunate to be, you know, working for lots of great editors at great publications. And I think science and science literacy is just so underappreciated and, and really, really important in our culture and in our democracy. I mean, in our entire country right now, I think there's a lot of distrust of authority. There's a lot of misunderstanding of authority and sort of received wisdom. But I think the scientific method is one of the best ways we've ever invented to develop received wisdom, to understand ourselves. And I don't think a lot of people really know how it works. And so I try to bring that into my reporting and, and just give people a glimpse of what science actually is and what people try to do. But, you know, it can be harder sometimes when you're writing about things like black holes <laughs> and neutrinos yeah. and some of the stuff that I, I happen to enjoy writing about in physics. It's a sad statement on the times we're in that the centrality of, of science and reason is controversial in any way. It's, 
it's yeah. proven by history that science has led to the greatest advances in all of human history. And uh, seeing this backlash against expertise is is quite troubling. Um, I think we have a little bit of a parallel in the astronomy class in college. So tell me if this sounds about right to you. In, in my experience, as a kid, I was interested in a lot of things, like many kids, you know, mm -hmm. dinosaurs, planets, <laughs> you know, things like that. But I think space was one of the biggest. And I, I read as much as I could, didn't understand, of course, some of the more advanced stuff as a little kid, but I, I loved it. Um, back when I was a kid, my earliest memory is that the the moon formed at the same time as as Earth, right? They, they both coalesced at the same time. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit about how that theory has uh, has changed over time. But then I did get to college and I knew I wasn't going to be a scientist. But I had the opportunity to take an astronomy class. We had a small observatory on campus and I thought this is great. You know, I can actually have an elective, this science mm -hmm. class, I have to take a science class, but I'll take this elective of astronomy. And then I got there and there was some observation, not much. Yes. Um, there was a little bit about, you know, planetary science and a little bit about cosmology stuff, but it was in my memory, 90% math. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and I could do math and I, I didn't do badly at it. I did well in the class, but I didn't enjoy doing math, especially when I wanted to just look at planets. <laughs> is that is that how most intro astronomy classes are from both your experience and others in the field you've spoken with? Yes. And I mean, the same. I you know love stargazing and that's actually really not astronomy anymore. And that was sort of shocking to me in, in like undergrad, just learning that astronomy as an interest was not what I thought it was. And that's because I grew up, like you said, as a kid with telescopes and, you know, I had star maps and I had yeah. these like glow in the dark stars on the ceiling of my bedroom. <laughs> and I just thought it was so interesting and fun. And then when I wanted to kind of do it and learn more about it, I realized that like, no, it's really just math and mm -hmm. really high level math that I did not enjoy and did not come naturally to me. And now it's even more complicated because, I mean, you know, not to date myself too much, but when I was growing up, we didn't have these incredibly powerful supercomputers and, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, these really detailed algorithms. And, you know, to do professional astronomy now, you really need to be a coder right. and you better have pretty good code that can pull data from these giant bins of information that we're getting from all these different telescopes and mm -hmm. sift through it and make sense of it that way. It's not as simple anymore as sitting at an eyepiece, you know, and looking at something beautiful. But I think that's how most people still view astronomy. And that's mm -hmm. how we mostly connect to it. You know, these images from the James Webb Space Telescope right. that come down to Earth, you see these amazing pictures. That's not what is coming into the telescope necessarily. There's a lot of production work that has to happen to sort of create that image. And that's what modern astronomers are doing is figuring out how to point that thing, where to put it, you know, how to, how to figure out the demands on it. That's an entire field of astronomy is like scheduling <laughs> because you need to think about where it is and where it's pointing and what's near that and what else is near that. And how do you yeah. optimize its location to get as many people, you know, their data as want it. And it's, it's not quite the romantic notion that I had as a young person that it's like sitting there alone in the darkness, looking at the stars. <laughs> Well, you found you found the romantic side of it, which is um, instead of spending all your time, you know, fighting for, you know, observatory time or or crunching the numbers, um, you're writing about it. You're you're talking to people. You're bringing the stories alive 
four people. So I'd say you still win. <laughs> plenty of people doing the the coding work. Yeah. Uh, I wanted I wanted to have you on chatter because uh, one one of the things that is in the kind of the distant orbit around our core of how national security interacts with a variety of things in science and technology and culture. Um, I, I, I keep coming back to the moon, right? There's this thing out there that has been there. I mean, the very first humans or even pre-humans, um, some of the very first life forms recognized there was a moon and responded to it and evolved in some kind of pattern with it. Yes, It's, it's there and we don't always think about it, but it influences us in a lot of ways. And I don't mean just the tales of, you know, lunacy and hospitalization <laughs> rates during full moon kind of thing. I mean, like the tides and just the fact that the the tides and the exploration of the moon have had impacts on national, what I would call national security and international history writ large. You've actually jumped into this with your relatively new book, congratulations, called Thanks. Our Moon, a wonderful short title with a massive subtitle, <laughs> as I recall. Yes, so Our then. Moon, and this will take the rest of the podcast for me to get through the <laughs> subtitle, How Earth's Celestial Companion Transformed the Planet, Guided Evolution, and Made Us Who We Are. Yes. Um, that covers everything. Well done. It does. Well, that's the US cover. And um, the British one, I think, is a little better in a Ooh. way because it's more simple. It's Our Moon, A Human History. Which I think mm. also kind of sums it up. That, that works yeah. really well, Rebecca. But you need to pronounce it with the accent, or it doesn't. <laughs> really but you've written a lot about the the moon from many different angles, and I want to talk about quite a few of those. But I want to set the stage a bit by talking about how people came to understand the moon through recorded history, and this goes back to somebody that I remember reading about as a kid, and I don't know how or where, but the name stuck with me. Enough that if I were to have another son, I would consider naming him. And I don't know how to pronounce it. It's it Anaxagoras or yes, uh, Anaxagoras. Anaxagoras. But either way, cool ass name, right? Yeah. <laughs> so Anaxagoras, kind of a pre-Socratic uh, Greek thinker whose direct writings weren't captured in the same way, but is known through many others. Um, talk about what he he was the first that we know of who recognized something and described something about the moon. What did he do and how did he essentially lay the foundation for some of these important moon studies for millennia since? Yeah, he's one of my favorite underrated characters from antiquity. And he's among this class of pre-Socratic philosophers, which I think don't get enough credit generally among philosophy you know, discussions because, you know, I think I said in the book at some point, the idea of poo-pooing these people who were pre-Socrates is as old as Socrates. <laughs> um, and it's in part because they didn't have this sort of connection that people made later between their observations and the collection of evidence. And this is sort of the idea of modern science. Like This is how it all comes together, the idea of empiricism. But People like Anaxagoras, Anaxagoras. I should probably know how to pronounce his name, but I'm not actually sure. Either <laughs> way, we win when... because we're talking about somebody more people should hear about. That's true. That's true. And this is the issue when you learn by reading, as I usually do. I don't, I'm always not sure how to pronounce certain things. But um, he understands early on and is probably one of the first people to really write down this understanding that the moon is a rock. <laughs> 
and that it's separate from earth and it is a thing it is not like an optical illusion it's not a bowl of fire it's not a leaf you know there are these other ideas at the time that this is what people thought it was if they thought about it at all and he's the one that was like no it's a rock it's earthy it's kind of like this place but different from this place but right there but far away and this is actually a huge leap in thinking and one of the ways that i think he comes to understand this is because there's a meteorite fall that happens in the same time frame and it's this giant rock from space <laughs> and it lands in gallipoli and within part of what's now turkey and it's famous in antiquity like this is written about in a bunch of different places that this meteorite falls it must have had a huge sonic boom it's described as being the size of a wagon so pretty big thing would have been this like steaming hunk of rock and it fell from the sky and you know he is one of the first people who is just like well that is right here now on the ground it's a rock it mm -hmm. was up there it came from up there this is why we still call the study of weather and earth skies meteorology because it's about things coming from above and so he sort of makes this connection that's like well if this was a rock and it was up there there must be a lot of other rocks up there and there's one big one the moon right. and i think this is actually a really unique thought at the time but he sort of has the insight that you know this is the nature of the moon is understandable and that we can grasp it even before that it just took the big brain you know the insight to say it wasn't zeus picking up part of a mountain <laughs> from somewhere i can't see and hurling it down at us but to tie that into what he was seeing up in the sky and you know get curious about eclipses and other things yes yeah he also witnesses an annular eclipse which we just had in the US um, in October of last year. This is like a ring of fire eclipse. Yeah. And we're having a total eclipse here in April. Um, but this is like, you know, it looks like there's a black hole in the sky, which is the moon is in front of the sun, but it's a little bit further away in its orbit. So it's not lined up exactly enough to block the entire sun. And he sees this and also has the insight that the moon went in front of the sun. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not that like it's been stolen or like Helios is in trouble or, yeah. you know, these yeah. other ideas people had at the time. And this this is heretical, actually, like this is, you know, a problem. And he's actually gets in a lot of trouble for talking about this and publishing about this. Mm -hmm. But it's it's really insightful that he sort of makes this connection that these are these are just objects and that they move around of their own accord and we can understand their nature. And that is I think one of the biggest leaps in antiquity that like we can actually try to perceive these things. We can try to come to know them. And that's right. a really big development. Now he famously didn't, uh, at least again, that we can find evidence of, he didn't use that as a springboard to really form a cosmology and look at root causes and try to figure out the nature of the universe. But honestly, you know, just, just to be able to make that leap and say, huh, I see these eclipses. And as I travel across, you know, the wider Greek world, um, I noticed that people also saw it, but, but at a certain point it wasn't the same, <gasps> you know, yeah. big brain moment. And, and you realize, okay, the, the moon must pass between the earth and the sun somehow. And we don't know how many people in generations past had that thought and just never recorded it. That's a problem of, of history, but, but he really did lay a foundation for a lot of, of study after. He did. And yeah, I think Socrates actually is like frustrated with him at some point. And he writes about like, 
you know, he had these great ideas, but he never did anything with it. <laughs> and like, it's a real bummer. You know, this guy was really bright, but he just sort of left it there. And, um, and he did, but I think that's for a lot of reasons that were also political at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he sort of is one of the first people to have the insight that we can try to understand this stuff and right. his successors really run with that. Yeah. It wasn't too long after in uh, geological time. It's uh, very quickly after that we have one of the most famous characters in all of history and everybody knows part of his story, but most people don't tie it into the moon. And you did a remarkable service by doing so. And it's fascinating to me that we can understand some of the things that made Julius Caesar famous by looking at references to the moon. Um, Talk about a couple of those. You know, why is Julius Caesar appearing in writing about the moon in the first place? <laughs> well, he's also another one of my very favorite people from antiquity. I think my like college thesis is about him. And um, I just have always sort of really enjoyed that. I mean, my Roman empire, you know, that viral whole thing is it literally is the Roman empire. <laughs> and so I happen to just care yeah. a lot about that era of history and, um, you know, I think a lot of people know the story of Julius Caesar because of Shakespeare, probably That's a right. very famous play. And just because, you know, he he comes down through antiquity as this incredibly swashbuckling guy. He creates the Roman Empire. He, you know, is the guy who sort of ends Roman democracy and creates imperial rule, which is then replicated throughout the next 2000 years. And I mean, we're still talking about people who have this sort of notion of dictatorship and he's the first one that's that literally comes from his reign as dictator he was dictator at rome and it wasn't a pejorative the way it is now we're talking about someone like yeah. vladimir putin but he was like i am the guy it is me i'm in charge mm-hmm. you know the buck stops here and one of the main things he does is reorient time so i mean even now many calendars on earth use the moon to divide up the year We just had the Lunar New Year, which is the Chinese calendar. It's a lunar Mm -hmm. solar calendar. The Jewish calendar is still a lunar calendar. The Islamic calendar is still a lunar calendar. But the civil calendar that most of the Western world uses is now totally divorced from the moon. And that's because of Caesar. So when he takes over in 44 BC, there's a lot of chaos in a lot of different ways politically. But one thing that's really chaotic is the timekeeping system. So Mm -hmm. if you use the moon to tell time, you quickly figure out that it's shorter. A lunar year is shorter than a solar year by 12 days. There are 354 days in 12 lunar cycles and 365.25 days in a solar year. So a year or two, of a lunar calendar and you're like out of whack by a month, you know, and over a few years, you're way off base. Like your harvest festival falls in the wrong moon of the year. And so societies throughout time across earth, figure out ways to sort of correlate these things. And in ancient Rome, there were people whose job it was to like set the calendar and they would add these intercalary periods where it would be like an extra month here and there or an extra week or a few days we still do this in the form of you know leap year. We have that this year. There's yep. a leap day, but it was kind of chaotic. We don't have priests doing it. We, we don't have priests doing it. We don't have calendars. Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting. Even the the word calendar, um, you know, the 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 pre Caesar adjustment, if you will, calendar. The calends was the what the the, the new moon mm-hmm. was the the term for that, 
And then the one word from the early Roman calendar that I think everybody knows, and it's because of Shakespeare, because he stated several times in the play, beware the beware Ides, the of, Ides March. of March. And people know Caesar, you know, had, had an untimely end. But the Ides was the full moon in that original calendar. And it meant something very important for the calendar, but it had to be a lunar-based calendar because after that, well, explain it to us. How does it change with with Caesar and why does the the Ides of March not not really seem as important as it would have a few years before that. Yeah. So he figures out that, you know, it's chaotic when people throughout Rome, which even then is a huge empire. It stretches across a lot of mainland Europe and you'd have priests in different parts of the, the empire, the country, the Republic trying to figure out like, wait, what month is it? Like we added an intercalary month, but like some people wouldn't get the memo, you know? So you'd have people in different parts of different provinces with like the wrong timekeeping system. So he's like, this is this is messy. We're going to fix this. After he goes to Egypt and hangs out with Cleopatra for a while, he learns about the um, Alexandrian calendar, which is more of a solar-based calendar. So he works with this Egyptian mathematician, and they figure out a new calendar. And they just say, like, you know what? It doesn't matter anymore what the moon is doing. We're just going to use the sun. We're just going to arbitrarily pick the beginning of the year in <laughs> January this after the solstice yeah. is going to be the new year and we're going to have you know 12 to separate months that are divided up and they're each going to be 30 days and that's it and they're there we still have these names from this calendar i mean september october november these are all roman names for the calendar july is named for julius caesar and yeah. august is named for his nephew and so he's the first person to like divorce the moon from our way of telling time. And this mm-hmm. is the first time the moon kind of like falls from power. <laughs> I yeah. think it faces its abyss. It really points to the dictatorial power. Um, we, we interpret that in hindsight as a, a military thing. And it was, it's a power move, but it was also the ability to change time because to make yeah. this happen, he basically had a, if I have it right, he had a year with like 440 days yeah. to kind of reset everything and catch up before the new system came into place, which of course needed adjustments like we still do with leap days and leap years and all this. But, you know, the ability to just say, guess what? This year we're throwing it all out. Uh, we're going to have 440 some days and and then we're going to count all over again based on the way that makes sense to me. Yep. That's, that's a power move. Yeah. He's one of the people who figures out like the guy who controls the calendar really controls society. Yeah. And, you know, I think the moon is one of the most powerful tools that you can use to do that. We still have relics of this. I mean, I've, I've mentioned this before. Election Day is a more modern example of this yeah. because we divide up our time by seven day weeks because you divide the lunar cycle in four. That's mm-hmm. why we have seven day weeks and there are four of them in a month. And, you know, in the 1860s, this was still pretty much an agrarian nation. We needed to figure out when the Electoral College was going to vote. And it was going to be voting in December and they knew they needed some time to tabulate all the ballots and get people time to travel to the big polling places. They backdated it by a few weeks <laughs> and they said, well, Sunday we can't vote because that's, you know, day of rest. And Monday is a travel day because men who could vote were had to, you know, get on their horse if they were lucky or walk to a polling place and takes a while. So that's how we got Tuesday. Yeah. And so Tuesday is election day. And right now there's still these debates about like, this isn't the best day to vote because it disenfranchises people who work, 
who often are, you know, maybe going to be voting Democratic. And so Democrats and Republicans cannot agree on whether or not to even make it a national holiday. So even still, the people who control the calendar control society. There was one other uh, Julius Caesar story that I can't let slip by, and that was his original attempt to invade the island of Great Britain. Yes. And, you know, he ultimately does more than just plant the flag and does establish Roman rule there for for centuries. But uh, the first time he tried, what happened? Yeah, he is thwarted by the tide. And it's in part because, you know, Roman navigators are used to the Mediterranean, which is like pretty chill, <laughs> like calm and warm and, and pretty nice. And the English Channel is not that. It's like cold and it's the rocks, you know, you can be dashed against these these granite rocks. And so they try to make land and their boats just are sort of, they're thwarted by the tide. They can't get close enough to shore and a few boats are ruined and yeah. they have to turn tail and go home. Hmm. That's a good, that's a good hook to talk about the tides. So, you know, from a five-year-old understanding, um, the moon affecting the the water on the planet earth is a bit of a stretch, <laughs> but you can get there. You can say, yeah, it's, it's got enough of a pull that it's not going to, you know, loosen rocks from mountains, but water a little more fluid. Okay. So I can see it rising or falling depending on where the moon is, but, and maybe I'm being unfair to five-year-olds or maybe I'm being too generous. I don't know. <laughs> but the idea being there's the moon in the sky as it moves over, the water rises towards it a little bit. That's, that's about where I got to and maybe where I still get to, <laughs> but there's a whole lot more that happens that leads to water bulges elsewhere on the planet that leads to differential tides like you said, between the Mediterranean and the English Channel and other places, not to mention the Bay of Fundy. Mm -hmm. um, talk through that. Explain how tides actually work beyond that fundamental understanding of some of the water moves a little bit closer to the moon. Yeah, it's so much more complicated than I ever tried to imagine <laughs> before trying to write about it. It was I read like multiple books on the tide, and it, it's like an incredibly detailed physics problem that I don't really even still claim to understand because it's so complex, but it is much more than, you know, the way we mostly experience the tide is like you're on the beach and the tide is coming in. You now need to move your beach towel <laughs> and it's like annoying, you know, or maybe you're in California during a King tide and you can go tide pooling and see starfish and other interesting creatures. But for the most part, that's about all we think about with the tide. It's so much more detailed than that. And so much more, I don't want to say violent, that that's the right word, but it, it kind of is like the, the actual motion of water in the entire planet is so much more traumatic <laughs> and dramatic than I think we normally realize. It's not just the water rising and falling kind of in this sort of inhalation, exhalation sensation. It's the entire ocean is sloshing. The entire planet is like sloshing around and it makes the whole earth wobble. It changes the length of our day. It changes the rotation of our planet. And so it's really a, an incredibly fundamental process that makes a lot of earth processes happen. And I think it starts from the deep ocean, actually. Like this is something I didn't really understand until working on this book, that the tide that brings water up a little bit on the shore or brings it back down a little bit on the shore really starts from the ocean floor. It's like a tsunami. 
like the entire ocean is moving. It's not just the tops. It's not just like the shoreline that's changing. It's the entire thing. So all of the water is mixing and sloshing around and being stirred. You know, it's imagine like you have a pot of soup and you your onions and stuff sink to the bottom if you haven't stirred it for a while, but you want to now serve it. So you like mix the whole thing and now you can like get a scoop of onions and carrots and celery and whatever else is in your soup. That's what's happening in the oceans because the entire thing is being stirred by the moon. And this has dramatic effects on everything from ocean currents to the nutrient cycle in the water to even the winds and the atmosphere. The entire thing is affected by this motion of of water because of the moon's pull on us. Explain a couple of things for us here. One is that the moon, in the time it takes the moon to go around the earth, um, you would expect one tide because of, you know, one high tide, one low tide because of the way that the water is moving towards the moon. And then it's presumably not being pulled up when the moon isn't overhead, but that's not exactly how it works. How, how does yeah. the entire global network of water make multiple tides? Yeah, we have two high and two low tides a day actually. in every location, well, almost every location, there's like a couple of weird exceptions, but yeah, it's, it's because of the way that this, you know, again, this violent like sloshing of water, the entire earth is bulging and it doesn't really, because earth is rotating and because earth is a sphere, it sort of has to do with laws of motion and cons- conservation of angular momentum and all these like laws of physics that it's, it's not as simple as like the moon is tugging on one side and like the Pacific is cresting toward it, you know, on the opposite side, it's also stretching out. And so imagine it being like the earth is is oblong you know it has these bulges on both sides of the moon and as the moon rotates the location of those bulges also changes and so it's yeah you get these multiple tide cycles each day and every location on earth and let's let's be clear you know on the the galactic scale it's not the earth is being stretched into a football shape every time the moon moves uh in some cases tides are you know, very small, almost immeasurable. And yet there are other places, the famous Bay of Fundy in, um, in Canada, where the tide is what dozens of feet. Yeah. Um, the differentials there, um, that has to do with a lot of complex dynamics, but geology and geography actually matter in terms of the, the funnels, uh, how much water gets into a bay or an inlet and what else is around it. And what's the the geology of the seafloor around it that makes the water move. What's amazing to me is that just observationally, we're going back thousands of years. People understood in their local environment the tides, right? You understood if, if it's your area, you and your ancestors have seen enough that this is what happens. And they even notice the patterns that at some times of year, they tend to be a little higher or a little lower than the average tide each day. Uh, did you get a sense researching this that people had some scientific curiosity about that going back thousands of years to understand the why of the you know the king tides and all the names that come up for the various mm-hmm. uh, what would you call it, exceptional tides or were they just kind of going along understanding it in their current environment and that was enough? I think it's probably a little bit of both. I mean, there are probably people who were like going about their day and, you know, weren't necessarily worried about it. But if you are a maritime society, you know, living near a shoreline, a lot of your economy is going to be based on the sea. 
and the products of the sea. And if you're you know, a fisherman and you have to be on a boat going where the fish are, all these things are going to come into play. And you better know about what you're doing. You better be able to predict it a little bit and have some sense of like, okay, if I go out to this shoal, you know, on a low tide, there's going to be rocks around me and I might get hurt or my boat might get messed up. So I better wait for a higher tide and I can get over this like reef or whatever, you know, in my way. And so, yeah, I think people probably just had a really natural relationship with the ocean and you can't have an ocean relationship without one with the tide because it's such a fundamental part of the ocean. And I kind of, I wanted the tide to feel like a character in this book. I I wanted the moon to be like the main character in a story Mm -hmm. when I was writing this. And I I wanted the tide to feel like part of that. And I think that's how people probably experienced it. it. It was something that they were familiar with and they knew its rhythms and they could predict its rhythms and they just sort of got used to it, used to its presence and how it changed their day-to-day lives. And I think they definitely began asking more detailed questions about mm-hmm. their own environment because of that. Right. Because the moon's orbit is not a perfect circle, um, you know, the moon has closer and, and farther points and people can observe this. Um, you can notice that there is a slight change in the perception of the moon because of it. Uh, and there is an associated title difference as well. Yes. This is something we didn't really understand until really the modern age. I mean, in the satellite era, when we had really good measurements of tides and coastlines and oceans. But yeah, so we all have heard of a supermoon, which are these like viral things that happen in the summer when the moon is really, really bright. It looks bigger because it is closer. And so it's this is this is the same phenomenon that causes these interesting tidal cycles. So sometimes because the moon orbits in an ellipse, it's closer. That's when we get supermoons. Sometimes it's further away and it looks smaller. This is actually the February moon is one of these, the furthest away moon that it can be. And it's called a micro moon. And it does look smaller. It looks like about 14% smaller and it's like 30% dimmer than a supermoon. And that's a pretty big difference, you know, and people over time would have noticed that. And they probably would have noticed how it affected the tide coming in because if the moon is further away you can imagine that it has a little bit of a weaker pull and if it's closer it has a stronger pull so some of these king tides in california that we've recently heard about are because the moon's close and when high tide comes in or when high tide goes out low tide goes out these are more extreme cycles when the moon is close and they're less extreme when it's further away yeah. i mean to me the, the complicated nature of this is a mathematician's dream, right? If you get enough data and you can, you can figure it out. Um, but to everybody else, it's just perplexing. Um, and especially if you're going into an area that you haven't gone into before, you might be smart enough in the modern era to think about the tides. Um, and this is a great tee up for a story that, that you've told about uh, Tarawa Atoll in World War II, um, this, this atoll that's now part of Kiribati, but at the time was occupied by the empire of Japan. And in November, 1943, the United States was, you know, moving militarily on it to, to liberate it. Um, and they were smart enough to think about the tides and what that would mean for landing troops on an Island, um, with some difficulty because of the nature of the, the, the beaches and the landscape. Um, but, but a funny thing happened to talk, talk through the story of November, 1943 and how it really points out the tides impact on 
you know, modern military history. Yeah, this is one of the most seminal battles of World War II. And it, I think it doesn't get as much attention as the European theater, you know, and all the the discussions and movies and books that have been written about D-Day, which also has a very important moon story, by the way. But yeah, the, the, in Tarawa, this is part of the invasion of the Gilbert Islands. And the idea is to get this airstrip on this atoll that is going to allow the allies to get closer to Japan for more bombing runs and eventually an invasion. And the Marine battle planners are thinking like, okay, we have to come in on a rising tide because this atoll is surrounded by a coral reef and we need to get our boats over the reef. And so we need at least five feet of water for these like pretty low, pretty flat bottom boats, but still enough water to float these things over the reef with troops in them. And they, they're kind of just guessing, actually. This is before the satellite era. This is before really great like aerial measurements of that part of the world by the allies, at least. So they're using tide charts from the era of maritime exploration in like the 19th century. They're using tide charts from as far away as the coast of Chile. So there's nothing to do with this part of the world, but they're like doing their best. And they make some measurements and they make some judgments and they figure the tide will rise around 11 in the morning, local time, because the moon is at last quarter. So it's rising pretty late at night and it's overhead in the middle of the night. And it's tide is going to be a little bit weaker because it's not a full or a new moon cycle. So it's not lined up with the sun, but they figure it'll bring in a high tide and it'll be big, bring it in around 11 in the morning. So if we start bombing this Island in the morning before sunrise, we should clear a path. These guys can get there get over the reef, take the island. And they did not know that the moon was further away. It was at this sort of peak of its distance in the same era that we have now, this month in February, where it's going to be a micro moon. So it's much further away in its orbit than it would be like during a super moon. And it has a much weaker pull on earth. So the tide does not rise and the boats get stuck and Mm. they get beached on this coral reef And they literally have to get out and walk through five feet of water, like wading into the beaches, holding their rifles over their heads. And Japanese soldiers are just shooting. And, you know, ultimately 3000 Marines died in this battle. Mm -hmm. It's the worst battle in the history of the Marine Corps. And the number of casualties was shocking to Americans back home. It's one of the things that ends up creating the, the um, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration Oceanography Division, because they realized, like, we don't know what we're doing. Like, we didn't, we missed this. We were way off on this tide. We, we need to do a whole bunch of work here. And that creates this entire new era of oceanography, in part because this battle went so badly. And ultimately, the Marines do take the island. The Allies do end up taking it over. And a week or so after the battle is over, my grandfather showed up there. Um, and he was a Marine. He was part of this battle. He was not in the invasion that day, luckily, and he made it and went on to have my mom and her siblings and um, retired from the Marines and went home. But this is a, a deep connection in my family that I always heard as a kid. I heard about his service in World War II. I heard about Tarawa. I knew he was there. I knew it was this famous, terrible battle, but he never really talked about it. Like a lot of veterans, he didn't like to talk about right these stories. And when I was writing this book, I was just looking for examples of like interesting battles, like the Julius Caesar thing stuck out to me. Mm -hmm. D-Day stuck out to me. 
And I was reading about this battle at Tarawa and I realized this is what happened. And only in the last couple of years did we actually realize what happened. Mm -hmm. It took a scientist in Texas who, who prides himself on studying history and astronomy and this, this collision of astronomical objects and historical events. And he's the one who really figured out this was a micro moon. It was a far away moon. Mm -hmm. And that was finally the, the missing piece that made this battle make sense. And so for it, me, it was like, I had to put this in the book. <laughs> it does make me wonder, you know, how many other sea battles in history, you know, where there's so much going on, right? It can be just weather, surface weather. Um, it can be, of course, the relative strength of the the troops involved and the tactics involved and the leadership. But how many other battles have had some significant but unperceived effect due to a small difference in tide that... Um, now analysis can go back and figure out, oh, this thing that didn't quite make sense, why this experienced commander would actually mm -hmm. lose this many ships in this way. Uh, there might be some good some good new history being written on other battles as well. I think so. I mean, yeah. I think we've, we have largely failed to appreciate the role the moon mm -hmm. plays in our history. And I think there's probably plenty other examples like that. Yeah. Of course, tides still affect a lot of people in a lot of ways now, but we hear about it most, uh, at least this is my perception, we hear about it most when it comes to hurricanes and other coastal storms, that when there is the approach of a storm that is tied in time to a high tide or to one of these super tides, um, that the coastal flooding damage in this era of, of climate change is actually much, much worse. And mm -hmm. people have started to look less at wind speed and rainfall totals themselves as they do at the flooding effect with tides being a huge component of that. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is this is becoming a huge problem in cities like Miami and Venice. And, you know, you can really tell that the when the high tide comes in and that the moon is close, then you're going to have problems. <laughs> and the local geography really plays a role too, depending on the, the depth of the basin that the water is in, the channels that, you know, either humans or time and erosion mm -hmm. have created all play a role in how the water comes in. Sure. But yeah, the moon is going to really play a role in sea level rise. And I don't think we really fully understand that yet. Yeah. Another aspect of the moon uh, before we get to some hardcore geopolitics here, another aspect of the moon that's fun to me to, to reflect on is kind of it's the way that we perceive it in our current cultural experience is quite different than it used to be simply because we know more. First of all, like you pointed out, we know what the moon is now, which wasn't mm -hmm. true a few thousand years ago, but it was only what 400 or some years ago that Galileo discovered, oh, that, that thing out there that we call Jupiter has some things going around it too. Yeah. And with this the discovery of the Jovian moons, suddenly there's a realization that, you know what? We're not alone. In fact, you isolated a, a great quote on this topic that I want to read. Um, I believe it was Kepler writing this to Galileo upon his observation. Our moon exists for us on the earth, not for the other globes. Those four little moons exist for Jupiter, not for us. Each planet in turn, together with its occupants, is served by its own satellites. What an interesting take on it that 
the satellites, the, the moons, um, are in service of the planets. And that puts a whole different spin on it than through much of prehistory and history where the moon was either worshipped as a, as a god or more often a goddess and was seen as something that was mystical. Instead, now it's something that's part of a system that we're beginning to understand scientifically, and it is in our service. Yeah, this is another giant leap, I think, and and just cognition and how people are viewing themselves and the systems that we are part of. I love Kepler. I'm like obsessed with Kepler. <laughs> I've read like multiple biographies of him to write this book, and he's just an incredible person. And like he's a great writer. He's a very creative thinker. He's sort of this like bridge between two worlds because this is really happening in the in the end of the medieval period, you know, in the in the early 1600s, and he's of that time but he's such a forward thinker he and galileo but really kepler is just such a genius in a way that transcends time and yeah he has this unbelievable insight that like the moon is doing things it isn't the only one what does that mean and it it places us and our whole system in a whole different context Mm -hmm. so i figured out the majority of the answers to the common question that gets asked, you know, who from all of history would you have at a dinner party together? So, so far, <laughs> I know you're going to have Anaxagoras and he can yes. tell you if, if you're pronouncing his name wrong. You're going to have Julius Caesar, hope he doesn't take over the table. And you're going to have Johannes Kepler. Yes. Um, there's room for one more. Who else in all of moon science, history, fiction, oh, culture, who's, who's taking that other seat at your table? Oh, that's a good question. I don't, I'd have to think about that because there are so many choices. I would, I don't know. Part of me wants to jump to like Neil Armstrong, you know, or Michael Collins even as the one who didn't walk on it, but went, Um, but also like Mary Shelley, you know, and, or Rockwell Kent, Jules Verne, you know, some of these artists that have created amazing works of Mm -hmm. literature or, you know, visual art about the moon and just why they did that or how it, with what they wanted to convey about the moon or through the moon, I would mm-hmm. love to have those conversations. See, I'm a huge science fiction fan, kind of classical science fiction. And Arthur C. Clarke mm-hmm. is, is one of my favorites. So it'd be hard for me not to have him at any table on any topic, but he did enough on the moon that I think we could get away with having him. Um, <laughs> but he he did a shout out to to Jules Verne, who wrote the first I'm sure there were others that were considered major, but at the intersection of you know fiction about the moon and kind of what you would call a more modernistic science fiction approach of actually looking at the human interactions around space exploration, the the politics, the economics, the perceptions, the the value of all of it. Um, 1865, if I recall, was when Jules Verne published From the Earth to the moon and a really seminal work, right? Unbelievable book. Yeah. This is one of those things that, you know, growing up you hear about, or, you know, I took a class and in, in literature in college. And I think that we read this book and it's like this old timey thing. And you're like, Oh, whatever. I have to read this, you know, but then you read it and it's like, <laughs> it's incredible. It's so funny yeah. and detailed and wise. And I think like, a lot of good science fiction. It really is a way of talking about our problems. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's it's like an avatar for us and a way to transport our current issues into this realm that feels a little bit more distant and safer, maybe. Right. But we can play out our same struggles. And but it's just such a great 
book actually it's just really entertaining i and had trouble i had trouble in school when the you know literature professors would talk about you know influences and borrowing from this and i was just like no you know i'm i'm, I'm focused on each story i don't get it <laughs> but i get this when i read arthur c clark or isaac yes. asimov jules verne was setting the template a hundred years earlier. He really was. And it, it's, it's fun to read it. And you sort of see that, like you can see like the influences that come after him and, and the things that you might right. be a fan of in more modern writing. You're like, Oh, I, now I get yeah. it. You know, it's like listening to the Beatles and you're like, Oh, okay. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> they laid the groundwork for everybody else. The, um, another of course, huge cultural moment as well as scientific moment, geopolitical moment was the moon landing, 1969, but there was actually a moment that's largely forgotten because of the importance of that event that occurred, I think, less than a year earlier uh, on Christmas Eve of 1968. Um, what happened and how was it truly important in the history of the moon and the earth? So this is um, Apollo 8, and it's the first time humanity has orbited the moon and gone all the way around to the far side of the moon for the first time. And there are three astronauts on board. This is, they're trying to kind of ramp up Apollo because the Soviet Union's also ramping up their moon program and people are getting worried. And they're like, we really need to do a test flight. It was going to be an uncrewed test flight. And just like, let's make sure we can get this thing there and like test some things out. Right. And they decide like, we're going to put people on it and we're just going to go for it. Yeah. And so the Apollo 8 crew goes all the way around the moon on Christmas Eve and for the first time sees the far side of the moon, which is this mm. incredible thing, but also for the first time sees earth as a gibbous, you know, half earth, the way we have always seen the moon. And it's mm -hmm. this unbelievably transformative thing, I think for the astronauts, for sure. And you can listen to their tapes talking about it. And for everybody else who sees the images, you know, and this is on this is broadcast on TV which is incredible to think about, but they had a camera on board and they're broadcasting back to earth. They also read from Genesis. And so it imbues this entire thing with this really like otherworldly and really almost holy feeling where it's mm -hmm. like, we have transcended the gates of heaven. <laughs> yeah. We have crossed this threshold and left this planet and seen our planet from afar and right. I think a lot of people attribute that to the beginning of the environmental movement. You know, we see Earth mm -hmm. as this fragile, mm -hmm. really small thing from not that far away. I mean, we're just the, at the moon. It's it's mm -hmm. kind of it's it's far, but it's not you know that far. Mm -hmm. And it's it's really a transformative thing for everyone on Earth. You pointed out one fact about it that I had never thought about before. If I had, I'd forgotten about it, which is that humans going around the far side of the moon and looping back. Yes, they're still within the Earth's gravitational influence, right? The, I mean, obviously the moon is, so anybody going around sure. the moon yeah. still is in the Earth's much larger gravitational influence, except when they're in that loop, they were the first human beings, and there have been very, very few of them, um, but they were the, the very first human beings who, in a sense, were more lunar than terrestrial because the pull of the moon's gravity at that moment was stronger than Earth's gravity. So they were really the first lunar yeah. explorers. They're the first beings, well, the first humans, because there were other animals that the Soviets sent up around the moon. Soviets um, sent some, what, tortoises or yeah, something? Yeah, some right? tor Russian tortoises. Yeah. Yeah. They don't get um, nearly as much credit as uh, the space dog, right? No. Yeah. We all hear about Laika and, and Ham, the chimp. Yeah. 
um, yeah. the U.S. end up there. But yeah, they're the first humans to really become captured by another yeah. world. But that's a, a fascinating point that this is all in the context of the Cold War. And while you had science fiction authors, you know, Jules Verne, you know, would he have been alive, would have been happy to see the, these missions going up towards the moon. I'm not sure that science fiction interest and scientific curiosity would have gotten us to the moon in the 1960s if it were not for this, you know, geopolitical, you know, chest pumping, like trying to say, well, you did Sputnik and that makes us feel bad. And, you know, we did the Bay of Pigs and that that makes us feel bad. So we got to get to the moon and it's a national pride thing. And an immense amount of resources go into this that, you know, in retrospect, we think was a great thing and everyone was rah-rah about it. But almost half of the American people in polling in the 60s opposed the idea of spending so much on the moonshot. Um, but it all came out of geopolitics. And that's fascinating that this voyage, which ultimately the Apollo missions led to incredible scientific advances. And now we have a fundamentally different understanding of the moon and its origins and its elements than we did before. But all of that science came from, you know, the superpower insecurity during the Cold War. Yeah. I mean, the science is the sort of the result, but that definitely is not why we went. And I think the decision to go to the moon at the time really is the confluence of a lot of these events. And it, it culminates in the Cold War and the the insecurity that our, our young president had and and the sort of ambition he had at the same time. John F. Kennedy was, you know, really young and dynamic and really wanted to do something impressive <laughs> and, you know, also was, was obviously very threatened by Soviet aggression. And this is right before the Vietnam war explodes, you know, there's a lot of reasons to sort of stake a claim and, and to shake our stick. And that's what we really were doing, but it also happened after an entire decade of really not aggressive, but really, you know, potent writing about space exploration by people like Werner von Braun, yeah. who ends up you know, leading the entire program to get us to the moon. Um, but long before this was, well, not long before Sputnik even, this was something that people were talking about doing. And I think mm -hmm. it was in large part because of things like Jules Verne, you know, von Braun talked about this being a kid reading these books and being just captivated by the idea of going to the moon. And I think it, so it was a nice kind of confluence of like people were really mm -hmm. eager to go and to do this and to show off what we could do with our new rockets. And also like we had a really good reason to do it, to prove ourselves and prove our mettle, yeah. you know, on the international stage. For almost half a century since, uh, geopolitics around the moon have seemingly taken a back seat to the science and the understanding, uh, not entirely true, but as a relative matter, perhaps. Um, that may be changing again, which we'll get to in a moment. Mm -hmm. But talk about that scientific boon that we got from the discoveries of the very late 1960s, early 1970s, um, including the consensus view such that there is one now on the true origins of the moon rather than my little kid understanding of it back <laughs> in the day. Well, I mean, the, yeah, our, both our little kid understanding of it is, I think, was really shared by a lot of people. One of my like really formative views about this is the Disney movie Fantasia, <laughs> which like I had on VHS as a kid nice. and watched on repeat. And there's this whole sequence in Fantasia where the, the music in the background is the Rite of Spring, but it shows the creation of Earth and the moon 
and the early earth with these volcanoes everywhere and then the the dinosaurs and the fall of the dinosaurs the evolution of life and it's so fun to watch now because it's so different from our current understanding like the dinosaurs just kind of go away at one point and they were like they're coughing they're like sick in the fantasia sequence and like yeah, you can't really tell much, why yeah. yeah like you're not sure what's going on but now we know that it's giant asteroid you know hit the planet and and wipe them out but we didn't know that when this movie was made which i think is fun to realize and we didn't know how the moon got here it sort of just swirls around in the beginning of that sequence and because of the apollo rocks now we have a good idea anyway i shouldn't say we know but we have some some notions about how it got here and it turns out that it really is just a part of us it was shorn from the early earth at some point in an incredibly violent titanic collision between another planet the size of mars and the early earth and both of them are totally obliterated in this and the result is this system of paired worlds but it really took apollo samples to show us that story because before then why would we think we wouldn't think that it doesn't make any sense like it's very strange it doesn't obtain anywhere else there's no system like this anywhere else in our solar system maybe in the entire galaxy so we didn't really know how the moon got here it is fascinating to me. Two things. First of all, your use of the word shorn, which may be the first on the podcast. Thank <laughs> you. Um, and secondly, that this is the system we know. By definition, uh, unless we think hard enough about it, we have a bias of thinking this is the norm, um, this system. And yet we don't see it anywhere else in the solar, solar system. We don't see anything close to it. And so far in what we've been able to observe, and because we're making advances so quickly, um, by the time this podcast airs, maybe we'll learn something in the coming weeks. But um, so far, we we don't see a lot of systems that look like an Earth-Moon system. Um, it's just not there, which raises some really interesting questions based on the entire evolutionary history of life and how the moon seems to have had such an important influence on it. We don't know what we don't know, but that could actually change dramatically some of those variables, you know, in the, in the Drake equation or other things that that make us think about extraterrestrial life. Absolutely. And I, this is like a hill I will die on now. (laughs) It's like the moon is, I think the most important, you know, physical trait of earth. And it it might be related to, to plate tectonics, which is another defining characteristic of this planet that our crust is like alive and moves and changes and erases itself. The moon might be one reason why that happens. Its formation may have sort of kickstarted that process and never let it mm-hmm. go down. And it, we know that it keeps our climate stable over millennia because mm-hmm. it stabilizes the tilt of our axis. You know, we're, we're pointed at 23 and a half degrees on our axis, which is why we have the seasons, you know, and yeah. soon will be the Northern Hemisphere spring equinox. And that's because of the moon. I mean, this, this, the stability of this tilt over time is thanks to the moon's gravity. If we didn't have it, we would probably flip over just like Mars does every few tens of millions of years. Right. And if you flip our polar ice caps toward where the equator is now, you know, pointing at the sun, all that ice is going to melt. That's going to have enormous effects on the oceans and the atmosphere and the carbon cycle and all these things that make earth what it is. So I really think if we look for Earth-like, Earth-sized planets around sun-like stars, we should really be looking for planets in the habitable zone that mm-hmm. have large moons, because I think it might be really important for life. Right on. 
Well, we need to return to geopolitics before we close because now that uh, 50 year or so period of, you know, science relatively over geopolitics that I uh, proposed is is slightly different because we have everything from private companies to countries like China looking to, despite the Outer Space Treaty, essentially stake out uh, territory on the moon by establishing locations. Um, China on the far side of the moon, people are talking about the poles uh, for particular water-based reasons or the peaks of eternal light for solar reasons. So talk through how you envision you know, these dynamics playing out in the next few years as there seems to be not quite a full space race, but definitely a, a heightened level of interest activity. And of course, the technology enabling it to get private companies and major powers again to the moon. Yeah, I think this is super fascinating. And I I think it'll be really interesting actually to look ahead, you know, 30 years and be able to look back on this time. And I wonder if we would phrase it differently where it was like, oh my goodness, what a space race that was, or what a cold war that was with China, you know, in, in ways that we don't talk about it openly right now, probably, but with some perspective, I think we might feel a little bit differently. Um, and yeah, they, I mean, there's a lot of interest in being up on the moon for science, you know, this is one of the things that NASA at least talks about is we have a lot of questions now, thanks to Apollo, and we'd like some good answers. And we need to get new samples. We need to get samples from different areas. We want to understand the moon better and understand ourselves better in the process. And, you know, NASA also is hoping that if they help to generate a lunar economy, or at least sort of foster one, then NASA's own plans are more hardened against political wins in the U.S., and funding cuts like we just had here last week. Um, there were some big cuts to NASA funding and people were laid off at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So if, if NASA can outsource some of the work of getting cargo and maybe even people to the moon, then it will continue without you know whoever is president. <laughs> I think that's one of the goals. Um, and then another one, big one, is the interest that China has in being up there and India and Japan and Russia you know, all the spacefaring countries are interested in being on the moon for their own reasons. And sometimes that's for science. Sometimes that's for just the, you know, kind of flag waving exploration. And sometimes it's for money. Like there's a lot of interest in mining on the moon or harvesting water, which really is more usable for things like rocket fuel. Like if you can like split the hydrogen and oxygen and water into HO, then you have some nice rocket fuel you can refine which would make it easier to get back off the moon or maybe go somewhere else like Mars. And this is all driving this new interest. And I think, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how this all unfolds because it is still very hard to get there. It's still very dangerous. It's still, it's always going to be austere. It's always going to be really inhospitable. So I think it's going to be a little slower pace than people like to talk about it being with a lot of the, you know, the eagerness people have and the excitement we have is I think needs to be tempered by just the sheer difficulty. You know, it's been a long time since Apollo. So it's sort of this memory and we, we talk about it like, well, I already did that. Yeah. But you know, the, the physics haven't changed. <laughs> it's still hard. It's still hard to get off this planet. It's still hard to cross that distance and land safely. And it's going to take some time before we do it with any regularity, but there are a lot of people who are hoping that will happen. And mm-hmm. It's yeah. going to be, it's going to be tricky. Two thoughts occur to me there. One is your point about how hard it is. Maybe we have a, a, a bias because we're also at the same time talking about Mars and a lot of wise 
uh, much smarter than than I am voices have been talking about how really difficult Mars is in terms of the distance, in terms of the planetary positioning to, to actually get people there and back with outside of cycle. Um, just just how brutal and, and difficult it is. Um, as Fraser Kane says, you know, the, the universe wants to kill you and <laughs> Mars is pretty good at it. But compared to Mars, the moon looks easy. So there's that bias is yeah. um, because we, we are focused on Mars. The other one is that, you know, your point that just because we've done it, there's a bias to think, well, it's easy to do it again, mm-hmm. but history should point us in another direction because you had ocean going vessels for a long, long time. You can go Phoenicians and Greeks and, you know, many mm-hmm. others, but just even the the major voyages of European exploration and take Columbus's, right? They Fine. He gets across the Atlantic, um, how many large ships going across oceans have you know crashed and sunk since then? The fact that he did it didn't make it easy for others. Right. Uh, there were many, many huge disasters afterwards. So you're right. Maybe we're a little naive. Maybe we're a little too optimistic about I think sometimes yeah. the moon being easy to explore. And we we haven't even explored much of Antarctica or certainly the bottom of the ocean um, and yeah. the ocean floor. What makes the moon so easy? There was a just recently, like this past week, there was a new scientific paper that they discovered a giant seamount in the middle of the Pacific Ocean that had never been seen before. <laughs> it's a huge mountain, a couple of miles tall in the in the ocean. And people had no idea it was there until there was a, a scientific expedition that was looking at um, seismology, I think. And they're using spacecraft to measure Earth's gravity with really incredible precision. And there was this gravity anomaly which means that like something there's probably more mass. There's like something there that's pulling in a different way on this satellite just by a little tiny scotch. Wow. And they did some more detailed ocean mapping and found this giant seamount. <laughs> and I'm like, I, that just blew my mind. Like we don't know everything about the oceans. And so, yeah. you know, let alone the moon. And I think we just need to be mindful of how difficult that actually is. It's not, it was not made for us. We were not made for it. And you know, it's difficult to do. As in so many areas, a healthy dose of humility is in order here. Yes. <laughs> right. Um, one of the most fascinating ideas that I've heard that I, I fear some of this quasi-commercial activity could get in the way of is using the, not the dark side of the moon, using the far side <laughs> of the moon. Sorry, Pink Floyd. Um, use the far side to put a truly massive kilometers wide uh, telescope that can be shielded from the yes. transmissions of Earth and let us look further back in time, uh, farther away in space, however you want to phrase it, than even our most advanced uh, platforms now. Um, there's a lot of talk about it, but mm-hmm. from you know your conversations with people actively involved in this in the community and all around it, is this something that is feasible, feasible and reasonable? in our lifetimes that we could see a truly revolutionary platform on the far side of the moon? I definitely think so. And I think that there's a lot of concern right now among scientists about this sort of headlong rush back up there, because if, you know, China or India or Russia or the U S put up a satellite or a, you know, some kind of base, like a a little lander or a Rover with a base station to do science, all of a sudden the far side is no longer quiet. And 
if you have radio communications between Earth and these little lunar base stations, that's going to get in the way of this really detailed radio astronomy people are talking about doing. And I think it would be amazing. I mean, the moon itself blocking all of the transmissions of Earth would give you this unparalleled view into the earliest universe. Like this, It's called the cosmic dawn, the era in which the first stars ignite. And we don't know how or why that happened or even when. We know when it ended. We know when the first stars you know, started blinking out, but we don't know how they originated. And one of the ways to try to understand that time is this really detailed radio astronomy. And the moon is the greatest place to do that because you're shielded from all of our earthly noise. <laughs> and yet, if we start putting stuff up there on a permanent or semi-permanent basis, that will become very difficult, if not impossible. So there's a lot of concern right now among astronomers who are hoping to do this sort of work. There's actually a couple different programs NASA is funding to look at doing this, feasibility studies. There are a couple small satellite payloads designed to look at this just to see how well it could work. Can we use moon dust to 3D print you know, a surface to put this on? There's actually a fair amount of interest in this already, but there's also a lot of concern because there's so much interest in being up there for commercial and geopolitical reasons. Well, let's hope we can uh, manage the latter to get to the former. We'd, we'd all be in better shape then. Well, it is now when we turn to our chatterbox, and I'll pull out a question at random for you. Buckle in. <laughs> if you could give one piece of advice to your 20-year-old self, what would it be? Oh, man. Oh, this is going to sound so trite, but it, <laughs> it would probably be follow your heart because, yeah. you know, I've, I've always loved the moon ever since I was a kid. I've, oh. I've had this sort of disconnection to it, but I never thought about doing anything with that. I never mm. thought about like making that my work mm. until more recently. And, you know, yeah, I guess that would be that would be a good piece of advice. I will say you you have done something remarkable with it. Your book, Our Moon, is is one of my favorites because it does combine Thanks. so many things that maybe other people don't like, but they all work for David. And that's you <laughs> know, ancient Greek history. You've got, you know, Mesopotamian history, you've got some real no kidding science, as well as geopolitics, pop culture, space law. I mean, everything gets into this and it's all through that main character of the moon. Uh, Rebecca Boyle, thank you for, for writing it. And thanks for chatting about all these topics today. Thanks so much for having me. This was fun. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. Chatter.